We come to a passage that ought to be familiar to us. It is remarkably similar to the experience of Isaac's father, Abraham, though it is not identical. Similar incidents happened not just once, as in Isaac's experience, but twice for Abraham. In our passage, there is a famine in the promised land, and the Lord appears to Isaac. He reaffirms his covenant promises to him, and he instructs him on what to do. In Genesis 12, the Lord appears to Abraham, reaffirming his covenant promises to him, and then there's a severe famine in the land, in the promised land, and then Abraham goes down to Egypt for help outside of the covenant. We read in Genesis 12, Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to your descendants, I will give this land. And we see Abraham building altars and calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, So Abraham journeyed going on still toward the south. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there for the famine was severe in the land. Okay. Now contrast this with Isaac, who is also experiencing famine. And the Lord also appears to him. But he instructs him specifically not to go down to Egypt. He says, stay in the land. God doesn't elaborate on why, except to say that he would prosper him in the land as he dwelt in the land. Contrast this with Isaac's son, Jacob. Jacob also experiences a famine. And the famine in Jacob's time was not located just in Canaan, but it was worldwide. It was a universal famine where all the nations of the earth went to Egypt for their salvation, so to speak. They came to Egypt for food, where God had raised up Joseph, who had anticipated this famine, by dreams, I might add. And he was able to save the world from starvation. Genesis 46 this is, so it's a similar thing. There's a famine in the land, and this is, this is what happens with Jacob. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will surely bring you up again. So... Isaac is specifically prohibited from going down to Egypt. Jacob is explicitly permitted to go down to Egypt. And Abraham was not given any directions one way or the other. He was given the liberty to decide on his own. And so I think what we can derive from this is that God, who is our father, like a father, speaks to different children differently according to their needs. Different children require different direction. Now, Matthew Henry speculates about the strengths and the weaknesses that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob all had. And we, we, we don't know. We can derive some things here and there. But we do know that Egypt is this time of uh, trial and testing. Abraham, we do know, also was keen to keep Isaac in the land when he was seeking a wife. Remember, he, he doesn't send Isaac out, but he sends a servant on Isaac's behalf to bring a wife back to him. Perhaps Abraham saw something in Isaac that he may have had a tendency to want to settle outside the land, and he, wanted, he sought to avoid that entirely. And perhaps this is God uh, speaking to that same thing and, and like Abraham, keeping him in the land during this uh, period of time. We don't know, but we do know that God is instructing these patriarchs differently in each case. We can gather from this, I think, uh, also how we can think of the tradition of our own fathers. 
uh, on matters of earthly wisdom. Um, while Isaac was walking the walk of faith that looked similar to Abraham, it wasn't identical. And the Lord directed him to conduct himself in a slightly different way than his father. His father had the freedom to go down to Egypt, but God says, you, you stay in the land. But he experienced a similar trial as his father. And the history of the church is like this. We don't always follow in the minutia of our fathers. We, don't, we, we follow the ways of faith. The word of God is unchanging in its essentials and its foundations. And we faithfully and rigidly obey the ancient ways. But in some matters, the spirit of God may direct us into slightly different paths. Some circumstances may require us to seek God on how to specifically act in certain situations. I mean, this is the problem of if you look at certain traditions like the Eastern tradition, they're statically locked into basically the, the, the fourth, fifth and sixth century. And that is the one way forever until Christ comes back that we are to worship and live. And I think that that kind of lack of attentiveness to the spirit is one of the downfalls of Eastern, of Eastern Orthodoxy. So these are things to consider that we see here with the patriarchs. Another similarity we see between Isaac and his father is the nature of their deception. So Abraham uses deception like Isaac when he is in Egypt and also when he is in Gerar. And also Abraham is, is interacting with an Abimelech. Uh, Abimelech just means my father is king. Avi Melech uh, is my father is king. And it's likely just a title for the king of uh, the Philistines, like Pharaoh is a title. So we don't know if it's exactly the same person. It's likely his son. Um, so in some ways you have Abimelech's son acting, uh, um, interacting with uh, Abraham's uh, son. But both Abraham and Isaac suspect that they may die because of their wife. Now, perhaps they were operating out of sinful fear here. Uh, Sarah is commended for uh, obeying Abraham in these, in these moments. And we see Rebecca submitting similarly. Um, but perhaps they were trying to protect their wife. Uh, per perhaps it was a mixture of both. Uh, we do see um, Abraham say, please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake that I may live because of you. But then at the same time, we see that they're, af they're afraid to die for the sake of their wife, which is an inversion of what Christ has done for us. But the larger shape of the story is one we see throughout Scripture. There's a man, there's a wife, and there's this powerful figure seeking to disrupt the plans of God. And Abimelech is not purposely doing this, but it would interrupt the perpetuation of the seed were he to be united with Rebekah. So this is something we see right from the beginning. Right in the garden, we see a man, his wife, and the serpent seeking to disrupt the plan of uh, God. Uh, this is seen in Revelation. We see that there's a woman giving birth and there's a dragon right there. There's a serpent. We see it in the time of Christ. Herod is this new dragon seeking to kill the seed uh, with Joseph and Mary as being uh, uh, the kind of uh, man and woman in that scenario. So it's a story arc that's repeated over and over, and God prevails every time. God intervenes every time. God preserves the seed of the woman every time. 
Now, what makes it difficult, because what I'm suggesting is that Abimelech is in the place of the serpent in this kind of categorization. But what makes it difficult is that both Pharaoh and Abimelech in Abraham's time and Abimelech here, they aren't malicious. They aren't even immoral. They, they're not snake-like. The, the, these men are not acting like tyrants in the sense that we would think. They honor the covenant of marriage. They, 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 respect it, um, uh, they respect it more than really most Christians do today. What, what does Abimelech say when he finds out the truth? Uh, which, is, which is interesting how he finds it out. We're told that um, our translations say Isaac is showing endearment to his wife, but it's actually a play on the words. It's Isaac is Isaac is Isaacing his wife. <laughs> he, he laughs, is laughing with his wife. But he was laughing with his wife in such a way where Abimelech is like, she's obviously not your sister. So there's, it's a kind of, he's laughing among the Philistines. And also, Abimelech looks out his window when he sees it, which also kind of indicates to us that Isaac was in this place of prominence already if he's right there next to the king. So, um, but, so he finds out the truth. And what's, what's his response? I mean, he's full of fear. He's like, you could have brought guilt on us. He, he, he understands the way the world works more than most Christian pastors today, right? He, what does he say? He says, um, he says, one of my people might soon have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. And he orders his people, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Today, it seems that most of our pastors... The jobs that they have is to create theologies justifying the practice of laying with other men's wives and explaining away the guilt that has been brought on us as a result that we are simply just suffering Christians and, and we have to endure uh, as, as a pilgrim people and we're just enduring the martyrdom. We, we, become our, we become martyrs. But Abimelech has more fear than Christians today. Abimelech understood the way of the world the way that God created the world better than Christians today. So my, my point is both, both Abimelech and Pharaoh, they rectify the situation once they realize the truth of what's happening. They appear to be repentant men, God-fearing men. Um, and so, okay, so if they're in, this, in the, in the uh, category of the serpent figure, but they appear to be God-fearing men in some sense, they're repentant once they're uh, presented with the truth, how do we resolve this knot? And this, this is my um, suggestion to you uh, to examine and judge. But I think we can think of Peter's interaction with Jesus. Peter is commended for acknowledging Jesus as the Christ. And then immediately after, Jesus is telling them that he must die. He's going to die at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and he starts rebuking him. He says, this is not going to happen. And then what does Jesus say? He calls him Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you don't have the things of God in mind, but the things of men. And so I don't think Peter was being malicious in that moment, but Satan used it to try to intervene and disrupt the plans of God. And so Peter in that moment was a serpent figure. And so I think that we can think of the Abimelechs and the, the Pharaohs uh, of this uh, moment um, uh, similarly as Peter in that moment of rebuke. Worth mentioning as supplemental to this man-woman-serpent nexus is the other two Abimelechs in Scripture. The other Abimelech uh, is um, 
Also, it's another it's another uh, Philistine king, and David feigns madness before him. He employs a certain kind of deception, and he is also sent away like Isaac is sent away. In Psalm 34, um, Psalm 34 is dedicated to this ruse that David does when he's among the Philistines and in front of Abimelech. And the, the preliminary title in that psalm is a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. And this whole psalm is about trusting in the Lord and God's deliverance from enemies. So we see that there's a certain kind of deliverance and deception paired together here. So I think that that also is uh, supplemental to it. And then the last one, the other Abimelech, does anybody know the other prominent Abimelech, really bad dude? The son of Gideon's concubine was Abimelech, and he, was a mur he murdered his brothers. He usurped their power like Satan. Um, and he, we are told in Judges 9, he goes and he's, he's, he's waging war against a certain strong tower of a city. And we're told that a woman throws a millstone off and crushes his skull. And so I think that this automatically would bring forward our thinkings of uh, the, the seed of the serpent having his head uh, crushed by the seed of the woman. So I think all of these things kind of supplement this man, woman, uh, serpent uh, uh, motif. And we don't have time to develop all of this, but I think I've given the relevant uh, pieces for seeing this rhyme of scripture repeated like music for those who have ears to hear. So enjoy the music. It is divine. Another thing happening here um, is likely some kind of kind of recapitulation or recasting or pattern of Genesis 6 when the, when the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they went into them. And there's a kind of illicit union going on in Genesis 6, which is also kind of this moment of disruption of God's order. And however we interpret it, there's, there's various ways of interpreting it. The, the fundamental thing going on there is that there is an illicit union. And if we think of Pharaoh in Abraham's day as a son of God, um, Satan is referred to as a son of God in Job. He saw a daughter of man who was also beautiful and tried to disrupt God's covenant redemption through her seed. Abimelech does the same with Sarah. Abimelech does the same with Rebekah. And when we get to Joseph, it's a kind of inversion. A daughter of men sees that a son of God is beautiful, and she tries to have him, but he successfully resists. Um, and so you have these kind of illicit unions between these two kinds of lines going on, um, and God perseveres uh, through them. God's uh, plan of redemption, the seed of the woman, um, is threatened, and then the seed of the woman perseveres. In our passage, we also see that Isaac becomes prosperous in the land of Gerar. And this is similar to what happens with Abraham in Egypt. And it's also similar to what actually happens in the Exodus, that there is wealth given to the people as they're leaving. And then once they're finished, then they inherit the land. And so I think that there's kind of this Exodus inheritance uh, aspect, both when Abraham leaves um, Egypt in Genesis 12 and 13, he, he begins to inherit the land. He begins digging these wells. It's very similar to uh, what Isaac is doing. Um, and so there's this kind of exodus inheritance of the land, which is also attendant with conflict. Um, so we see um, 
also, one other thing, what is, uh, when Abimelech says, anybody who uh, touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So we have this foreign ruler, this foreign king saying, don't touch these exodusing people. And, and when we get to the exodus, Pharaoh does exactly the opposite of this. He pursues them. He touches them. And what happens? They die. So exactly what Abimelech says here happens to uh, the, the armies in um, the Exodus. Also we, also, we see that when these kings come to Abraham, come to Isaac, unlike Pharaoh in the Exodus, and they are peaceful and bless him, Abraham blesses them. Isaac blesses them. There's these covenants of peace. And so we see that the covenant of God, what does God say to Abraham? Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And that's what we see happening over and over and over again here. Okay. We see that um, Abraham becomes a wealthy man and Isaac becomes a wealthy man. When God reaffirms his covenant to Isaac, he says uh, he will make his descendants uh, multiply like stars. He will give them lands. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And then he gives a reason why. Why? Why are these blessings here? He says, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So, this is curious language here. This is usually the kind of language that's employed of the law post-Sinai, but it's being used here to describe Abraham and his obedience to God. Abraham believed God, and it was credited, uh, credited to him as righteousness, but Abraham's faith is a living faith. It's a faith that obeyed. Um, and so this teaches us that Abraham because it preceded the law, we know, and Paul says this, he's justified apart from the law, but as a faithful man, he's reaping the benefits as a law keeper. And this is only done through faith, of course, but this is commended to Isaac. Abraham's obedience is commended to, to Isaac. And what's interesting is he says he was, he was obedient to all of these things, but he was not perfect. We know that Abraham sinned. He could have sinned before Abimelech and Pharaoh, but he certainly sinned with Hagar. And yet God is saying, he obeyed my commandments. And so we see that law keepers are not perfect. Jesus is perfect. We still need redemption. We still need the sacrifice of Christ to redeem us. And yet law keepers are commended and blessed and there, that it is possible to obey the law. So there are conditional and unconditional elements to the covenants of God, and we ought to affirm um, all of these things. Um, we see that uh, Samuel says to obey is better than sacrifice. Solomon says to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. So the covenantal law keeping on Abraham's part extends to his son. We see this kind of intergenerational blessing and um, it's ultimately extended. He says it'll bless all the nations. This extends all the way to Jesus. And then we are all the recipients of that. So there is there is blessings to the thousandth generation uh, to those who obey. And we see this uh, in, in a way um, primarily with Abraham's obedience. Okay. So we read in verse 12 that Isaac sowed and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. 
uh, verses 13 through 14 says the man began to prosper and he continued prospering until he became very prosperous. Just this very emphatic repetition of how much God was growing him. That word um, for prosper, uh, gadol, means to grow. He's, he's growing him like leaven. Like it's a, he's like a lump being uh, uh, growing in bread. It's very emphatic. So the Lord's blessings are material here. Of course, the spiritual is never divorced from the material, but it was so material that he um, was it was recognized by the non-believers in the land. We'll get to that in a second. But I want to I want to think about this. Isaac, both Abraham and Isaac are rich men. And Jesus has things to say about rich men, about riches. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus teaches about rich men. And it's it's. It is a fascinating pairing because in, in this passage, in Mark 10, we have teachings on divorce and remarriage, and then he rebukes the disciples for withholding children from him, and then he teaches on riches and not to trust in riches. And so this, this grouping is really dealing with all the same things that we're dealing with in our passage. Lawful versus unlawful unions, descendants, seed, children, and riches. All of these things are in our passage um, in Genesis, and Jesus is addressing these things here in Mark. And these are all things that are threatening the, the plan of redemption, the covenant in our own day. Illicit unions. The church has systematized uh, withholding the blessings to children in lots of ways. Uh, and then we don't have a good understanding of, of riches. Uh, maybe a better understanding than we used to, but... Um, in Mark 10, Jesus says, children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if we were to stop there, we might conclude that we should all just become mendicant friars and live in as much poverty as possible. But the passage doesn't stop there. It continues. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men, it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, see, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Notice the increase given here to those who leave everything for Jesus' sake. How much are they given? They receive a hundredfold, the same as in our passage. And we can see that this is the promises of God retroactively applied to Rebecca. Rebecca left her house her brothers, her sister, her father, and her mother, for the sake of the Lord, for the sake of the gospel, which had been preached to Abraham, which she knew about. We see her leaving all of that behind, going to a land which was in famine at, at that point. But then what happens? God blesses her a hundredfold through her husband, Isaac. So that's, all of those things are kind of worth, worth considering.
And so Isaac is becoming very wealthy. And in verse 14, what happens? The Philistines envy him. He becomes so prosperous that the Philistines start envying him. Proverbs 27, 4 says, Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? The blessings of God on Isaac's life were so tangible and manifest that those outside the cov covenant wanted what he had. Isaac's, uh, Isaac's servants are digging up wells. They're, they're making the land fruitful. They're transforming it from this land in famine to a land of Eden, a garden. They're making it beautiful. They're doing it by being industrious, by being innovative, uh, by being innovative. They're making it fruitful. And, and so God's blessings are coming to Isaac, but they're coming by means of labor and hard work. And what are the Philistines doing? They're stopping up the wells. They're complaining about Isaac's servants digging up the wells. They're complaining about Isaac's servants making the land better. They're claiming these things as their own. And this is exactly what we see happening in our own time. We are living in this same world. The unbelieving world envies the blessings of God on his people. They call it privilege, and they want Christians to be ashamed of their privilege. But our privilege doesn't come because we are white or Asian or purple or green. Our privilege comes by the blessings of God to his covenant keepers. And the world wants you to repent of your so-called privilege. But what that really is, is the demands of the envious, the demands of the lazy, who are demanding you to be ungrateful and ashamed of the good gifts of our good God. So may we never repent of God's good gifts to his people. The world is filled with envious Philistines, these stupid Philistines who are blocking up wells. Why would they do this? Abraham had dug a well that made their land prosperous. It gave them life and they filled it up with earth. And this is what the world is doing now. This explains the clown world that we have now. The world doesn't even want to receive the tangential benefits of Christendom. They just want to block it all up. They would rather destroy themselves and live in famine than receive the blessings of God. They stop up these wells. So we have these conflicts, we have these conflicts, this strife, and, and Isaac's servants keep moving, right? They keep moving along. They, they, the, the Philistines complain and they move and they dig another well. The Philistines complain, they move and they dig another well. By the third well, which is called spaciousness, we have a reprieve from the conflict. So there's, there's a trajectory even here of strife to peace. And notice, notice what's going on here. They're being accommodating to these Philistines in ways that they shouldn't, that, 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 you, that, that are gracious to them. And so this just makes me think of Solomon saying that there's a time for everything. There's a season for everything. The season for annihilating the Philistines was not yet. They were accommodating to them. And in fact, they lived with them in peace. Abimelech comes to him and he acknowledges that God is with Isaac, even though Abimelech and his 
and, and his people did not keep the covenant with Abraham. They broke it. They filled up the, they filled up the well. Isaac overlooks their covenant breaking. He overlooks their sinfulness, their, gre- their, their, their offenses against him. And he still makes this covenant of peace uh, with Abimelech uh, and Phicol, the, uh, the uh, army there. Uh, so lastly, this is, um, this is probably one of the most important things in our passage. The envy, in the envy of the Philistines, this is the last thing, but in the envy of the Philistines, we can see, I think, God teaching Isaac. He's, God is preparing Isaac for his own repentance. The inheritance and blessings rightly belong to Isaac, Right. And he, he, he received this, this inheritance and this blessing. Why does God say? Because of his father. And the, the Philistines are envious of him. And Isaac is ex- experiencing that envy from those who the blessing and inheritance does not belong to. So Isaac is in the place of Jacob here. The blessing and inheritance belong to Jacob. So how could Isaac rightly receive the blessing and inheritance from his father Abraham and not rightly give that blessing to the son which the Lord commanded it be given to? It would be like God giving the blessing to the Philistines instead of Isaac. And I think Isaac is experiencing this. I think we see the spirit of God using this event in the life of Isaac's life to prepare him for his own repentance. And uh, we'll see this when we get to it uh, in the next chapter. Let's pray. The charge is this, go and dig wells. Like Isaac, we live in a land surrounded by Philistines and Canaanites, envious of our blessings, threatening to take what is ours. It can be a scary thing transforming our barren wasteland of a country. But while Isaac was at Beersheba, the Lord appeared to him again, and he said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. God knows our frailties. He knows our weaknesses. He knows that we need reassurance. And so he repeats his promises to his people over and over again. We meet every, every Lord's day and we do this. This is repeated and God meets with us and he speaks his promises over and over and over again. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Be blessed. Those who live by faith need to hear these promises. We are nourished by them. We live by them. These words are our life. God is our life. He is the well of water that nourishes us. God has taken you and made you a new creation. Like Isaac took the land and made it a new creation. He takes you, sanctifies you, redeems you, gives you the glories and riches of salvation. And you in turn do the same. You take things and redeem them, not by your own will or might, but by the blessings of God. That's what Christians do. We take things, we make them better. We redeem them. So by the hand of God, Go and dig wells in Fort Collins. Build altars to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Call on his name. Believe in the promises. Do the work. Don't be afraid. He is with you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.